Our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We're starting right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. You can find it, if you like, in your pew Bibles on page 56. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and forced labor, with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramis as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, must, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Here ends our reading. Folks, who has one of these? You can be honest, I'm not going to tell you to turn it off. <clears throat> who has a Facebook account? Come on, you can be honest there as well. I find these are an amazing tool, and I'll tell you why. I'm able to keep track of how my congregation is thinking theologically and what they're doing. And it was just only this morning I wake up and I jump on Facebook. I get a little bit addicted to it. But jump on Facebook and here's a photo there of Bruce outside of Kingsington Palace with Kath and his daughter. And so we keep in contact uh, through Facebook. And I guess that he's probably doing the same thing with you guys as I do with my congregation, probably keeping an eye on how you guys think theologically. 
It allows me to see how members of my congregation are travelling and sometimes the little posts that they put on there outline where they, what they're thinking about. For example, God will protect you and your family from dangerous sickness. That was one that was put on just recently. What about this one? The next seven days, God will answer two of your prayers. How's that? Yeah, good as that. Um, God will lift you so high to a place nobody has ever been. Friends, when I read comments like this, I'm concerned that people have a distorted view of God and the works of God. People are not understanding the providence of God. People are... And as we glean through the first chapter of Exodus, we look, at the, we look at the last part and look at the last part of Genesis, we will find that the providence of God is not always good news. Roddy Borkham, a black American preacher, once said this, the providence of God has become the Christian word for luck. Uh, you might want to say amen or ouch to that one. And he gives a couple of examples And an example is that if you're caught up in a storm and the winds are blowing and all of a sudden the tree falls over, falls away from the house, our response is that's the providence of God. If we're driving down the street in our car, a car pulls out in front of us and we swerve to miss the car and and do so successfully, we say that's the providence of God. Never do we equate the providence of God to some bad things that go wrong in our lives. It is interesting that when we read the account of how the children of Israel move from Canaan down into Egypt, we are confronted with a number of not-so-good stories. But when we read these accounts, we find that God is the real hero. The real hero is God. It is God is the one that reveals himself to Moses. God is the one that hears the cries of his people in bondage. God is the one who raises up a saviour in Moses. God is the one who sends plagues on the land of Egypt. God is the one who divides the sea and gives a safe passage for the children of Israel to cross. God is the one who destroys the armies of Pharaoh. God, 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 the whole time as you look and work your way through this book, not, so much, not only the book of Exodus, but the whole Bible, it is about God and his work. So when we look at this book and when you study this book, the book is about God. It's about the providence of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, and the God who rules history by his sovereign power, and who delivers his chosen children, Israel. Now, when other writers of the Bible speak about the Exodus, their main focus is on the works of God. Therefore, this book is all about what God does for his children, Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt. Now, as we work our way through this particular book, we'll be confronted with a God who loves his people, a God who provides for his people, a God who is compassionate towards his people, and a God who is there for his people. This book is about the mighty works of God in delivering 
his children of Israel from slavery. This book is about the unfolding of the plan of redemption, the fulfilling of the words in Genesis 3.15. And we all know the story, don't we? Adam and Eve sins in the garden. Following that, God pulls Adam and Eve and the serpent aside and he reprimands them. And he says this to the serpent, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Friends, the whole of the Bible is about the fulfilling of the words of Genesis 3, 15, where God promises to send a person who will deal with sin once and for all. And this book and the rest of the Bible is God working through Abraham's offspring to fulfill his tasks. Now, when we come to Exodus chapter 1, there were two stories that have been told in the text. From, chapter, from verses 1 through to 14 is a continuation of the story that began in Genesis 37. Now, it's interesting that when we read the Bible, sometimes we read it as a continued unfolding narrative. And that's fine, and we don't take into, into uh, consideration what happens between this book and that book. Friends, Genesis closes with the death of Joseph and begins with the birth of Moses. So in there somewhere, there's about 400-year period that has lapsed where the children of Israel are down, have been in slavery down in Egypt. And we must ask ourselves the question, how has this all happened? It's a continuation of the story that began in Genesis 37, or even back further than that, where Joseph was sold into slavery. And when we read, read through the narrative, we find that underneath all the bad things that were happening to Joseph and the children of Israel, God was at work. God was at work. Right throughout the Bible, you can see underneath God being at work, fulfilling his purposes. Why? To save a nation from starvation and to protect the lineage through which Jesus would come. The circumstances around this is not pretty. It's not pretty. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, sold to a band of Midianites, and then sold again to Potiphar's house in Egypt. Potiphar being one of Pharaoh's officials and captains of the guard, in verse 2 of chapter 39, we read these words, The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered. When we read verse 4 of the same chapter, that Joseph becomes Potiphar's personal assistant. And as a result, God blesses Potiphar because of Joseph. Then in chapter 39, verse 9, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and tries to seduce him. He runs for his life and Potiphar's wife cries rape. And then Joseph finds himself in prison. And it wasn't just any prison. It was a prison where Pharaoh's servants were placed. Whilst in prison, he comes across two of Pharaoh's servants, the baker and the cupbearer. They both have dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams. 
The cupbearer is to be released to serve Pharaoh again, whilst the baker would be put to death. Joseph remained in jail for a further two years, and Pharaoh has a dream. We are told that the cupbearer completely forgot about Joseph when he was reinstated to serve Pharaoh. But when Pharaoh has a dream and none of his wise men were able to interpret the dream, the cupbearer then remembers Joseph. Joseph is summoned to Pharaoh in order to get help in interpreting the dream. The dream depicted what, that which was to come. Basically, there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. As a result of his interpreting the dreams, Joseph was put in second in charge of all of Egypt. Seven years of plenty came, seven years of drought. Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to seek food so they didn't perish. To cut a long story short, eventually Jacob and his whole family, 70 in total, moved down into Egypt. And that's where the story, or that's where Exodus chapter 1 picks up. They had been enslaved for 430 odd years. And when we get to Exodus 1, we come across a bridging passage of scripture. And friends, if, if we think about Joseph for a second and ask ourselves the question, not once have we saw Joseph complain or questioned the hand of God. Sold into slavery twice, once by his brothers and then by a band of Midianite merchants down into slavery, Accused of rape, locked up in prison, Joseph could have very easily cried out, God, where are you in all of this? I don't see you in my situation. And you know, right throughout that whole story, you don't see Joseph complaining once. He must have understood in some way God's plan for himself and that he would be a part of God's plan, regardless of what that looked like. So they'd been enslaved for 430 years, but God provides for them. But how does God provide for them? Well, the providence of God preserves his covenanting people. It preserves them. Here they are enslaved in a promised land. Assimilation could have taken place, but it didn't. And there's two ways that this could happen. That if you go in and you conquer a nation and then you enslave the people through which you are, to which you are conquering. That's one way of doing it. Or another way is the people separate themselves and don't assimilate to their surrounds. God had kept the children of Israel as a separate people for himself by taking them down from Canaan down into Egypt that his promises would be fulfilled. Secondly, he kept his people from premature death. Now Canaan, I don't know if you know much about Canaan, but it's an area where there is a lot of sheep and so forth and so on. And that's the area that David 
moved around in when he walked the earth. And we know that David came across a lot of wild beasts and animals. Well, Jacob's sons were all shepherds. And not one of them died at the hands of an animal. Not one of them died at the hands of an animal. When they went down into Egypt, they all went down together. It's interesting that the third thing is that he kept his people from separation. All of Jacob's sons went into Egypt together. Not one of them lived somewhere else. In fact, when you read chapter 39, this chapter is about Judah and Tamar. Judah goes off to establish his family and to pave his own way in life. But we know that when it came time for them to move down into Egypt, the whole of Jacob's family moved down there together. So when we come to Exodus 1 and the first seven verses, they are the linchpin to the book. And if we were to leave that out, you'd be asking, where is God in all of this? Well, God was there and he was at work underneath making happen and fulfilling his program and his plan that one day a Messiah would come and that he would, be, he would die a cruel death on Calvary. Joseph's understanding of the providence of God is very different from the, many, from the understanding of many my people. Not all things that come our way which are good Sure, they are the providence of God. But God sometimes sends things across our path and that will deliver up a few curveballs for us. And sometimes we'll say, God, where are you in all of this? Friends, can I assure you, the providence of God is at work in the lives of his people. And sometimes... There will be good things that will happen to us, but sometimes there will be other things that will come our way. Well, we might not necessarily see God at work, but can I assure you that he is. He is at work. I can remember some years ago when I was ministering out at Mount Druitt, a, brother, a friend of mine, a colleague in ministry, his brother had passed away, and he went up to take his funeral up at Karua. And as we stood around the graveside, he came over to me and he says, brother, he said, I really don't see God in any of this. I really don't see God. It's hard for me to grasp why this could be happening. I says, brother, perspective is everything. I said, there will come a, there will come a time when you look back over this situation and you'll see God's hand at work. Friends, can I say to you, that guy is a much better man today because some of those difficult things that he had to go through, he couldn't see it, but he trusted God, that God was working in that situation for him. I shared with the 8 o'clock service that last year was a bit of a rough patch for me. My dad passed away in October. I had a sister that passed away 10 to 12 uh, Christmas Eve. Recently, I had an auntie pass away. So we've experienced a lot of death, but not once did I question God's hand in it all. 
Dad loved the Lord, great Christian man. Sister was a Christian. My auntie was a Christian. And so I sit back and I say, you know, God is just so gracious, so wonderful that he's allowed me to have these people for a short period of time. And I can see the providence of God. And it was interesting that my dad suffered greatly before he died. Three weeks. And there was, you know, many of my siblings were around his bed, bedside and they were, they were in tears and, and so forth. But, you know, there was those of us who, who totally believed that one day we will see our dad again. I couldn't get to my sister's funeral. I had responsibilities, uh, church responsibilities in other places. And that was a real difficult time for me. And I had to trust God even in that. So can I say to you this morning that sometimes we will go through things in life where we don't see the mighty hand of God at work but that he is working underneath to make us to be more like Jesus. He is working just like he did in Joseph's situation. Sold into slavery twice. Yep, accused of rape, imprisoned. He could have very well easily have sang out, where is God in all of this? And he didn't. And so, my friend, let me say to you this morning, put your faith and trust in all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Even when the road gets a little bit rough and shaky. He will fulfil his purpose and plan for your life, even when we can't see that happening. Let me pray and then I'll hand it back over to Scott. Father, again, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you are a God that's fulfilling his plan of redemption for all of mankind. We pray, Lord, that um, you might continue to fulfil your plan in each of our lives, that we might be more like your son, Jesus. Help us to understand your plan. Help us to see through some of the difficult times that we are confronted with in order, Father, that we might live to the praise and glory of yourself. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Neville. Uh, we've just been hearing uh, about God's goodness and his sovereignty and how that works for the benefit of his people. And uh, you think about God working through strange circumstances and difficult circumstances. And 